Welcome to the Wealth Radar podcast, where we scan the landscape and navigate the noise of investing and personal wealth. I'm Jason Fowler, and I'm joined by my brother Paul. We are certified financial planners from Fowler's Group, and today we're joined by a great friend of ours, fellow financial advisor and colleague Peter Mansell. Welcome to Wealth Radar, Pete. Hi, Jason. Hi, Paul. Good to be here. Well, yeah, welcome, Pete. Um, Look, it's great, great to have you, and congratulations on on the, the book you've you've written, soon to be released. Um, I've actually had a, a read over the last couple of days, and um, love the concepts. Um, it's an easy read; um, it makes sense in layman's term, technical, but but simple to understand, um, which is good for someone like me, Pete. He's <laughs> <laughs> not wrong. Uh, Pete. The, yeah, the um, only thing you said it takes ninety minutes. It actually took me two hours, mate. But that that could be me. We just it's a, it's about fifty pages, people. <laughs> no, no, it's better than that. But. Um, Look, before we get into the episode, we ha- we do have a giveaway at the end, so you've got to listen to the whole thing. We'll have a question at the end, and um, once the the book's released, we will um, send that out to the to the lucky listener who, who who got it correct. Yep, sounds great. Excellent. So, Pete, we just thought we'd start with the question we ask every um, guest we've had on, and to this date, we've had one prior to you. So. <laughs> So it's a really big question. So what led you to becoming a financial advisor? How did you end up doing what you do today? I'd moved to Tasmania in May of 1979 and uh, principally to follow my sporting career, that is to to play cricket. And uh, when talking to a member of our club who was an advisor then with a large financial institution, he uh, indicated to me that maybe it might work out for me because then I could train and play when I wanted and work when I wanted and uh, success that I might enjoy would be determined by how hard I worked. And uh, 42 years on, he was right and I haven't had a job since. Yeah, it's fantastic. I th- we, we can't go past the sporting analogy. You know, three of us in the room here and I'm by far and away the least talented of the sports people in the room. So, Pete, what was your, before we get into the details of financial plan, what was your highlight, your sporting highlight as a cricketer, mate? Oh, well, luckily I played 15 games for Tasmania. Uh, so in first-class cricket, I enjoyed some modest success, uh, but my best ever day was uh, top scoring for the side, making 50 against the West Indies uh, back in the days when their fast bowlers were Andy Roberts, Michael Holding, Colin Croft and Joel oh, Garner. That's, so, a, that's a fair side. Yeah, yeah, it was a baptism <laughs> of fire, but uh, something I look back on very fondly. And you're, you're a handy off-spinner, so your biggest wicket? Uh, I think I've got uh, 25 test players out over the years. Oh, wow. Uh, but um, I certainly took some hidings from a couple of the greats, like yep. uh, uh, Kim Hughes gave us a bit of a toweling at Devonport. Jarvin Meandad gave us a hell of a hiding <laughs> at Launceston. Uh, so I tend to remember the ones that went out of the park. Clive Lloyd managed to hit me out of the TCA a couple of times. Um, so they've certainly... Um, you know, vivid in my memories uh, and, and probably caused some sunburn in the roof of my mouth yeah. as I watched them go over. <laughs> hey, Pete, before before we get into to the book, and I, I do like how you've actually put the, the sporting analogy together when we talk about the, the principles of investing and it's your, your, your five starters, which we, we will get um, will get into. What What's for you has changed, if we just specifically talk about investments over the, over the years and over your time, um, what's, what sort of changed from back then to how we do things now, whether it's the providers, the, the managers, what, what's different? I look back uh, and 42 years ago, uh, you know, I had great hope that I could believe in, in the major financial, financial institution that I partnered with and, uh, and they had their story to tell and, and largely that story was about having really smart people uh, that could gauge a view of the future and know what to do with their money. Mm. 
42 years later, I know that that very, very rarely works. So today, it's more about evidence of what does work and, and not about predicting, uh, as, as was originally promoted to me, that you needed to be really, really smart, make more good predictions than bad, mm-hmm. and you'd be really successful. Well, history's proved that to be a pretty poor choice. Yep. Yeah, that's it. and Pete, I know for me, and, and we went on this journey pretty much at the same time, right? So we've had a couple of trips and heard some pretty... Um, impressive spe- people speak at various locations around the Are world. They junkets or trips? No, no, trips. Trips, okay. mate. Yeah, trips. We're learning, always learning. <laughs> eh? University of Chicago, mate, you've got to learn there. We're at work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, for me, I remember, you know, in those early days of talking to the providers that we use today, it was that names Farmer and French, which for me were people I studied business finance at uni. Um, what was sort of the tipping? What was the thing that drove you towards this mentally towards this fashion of asset class investing or strategic investing, whatever you want to call it? Well, the very first instance was actually a bit of just plain luck. Uh, we were back in uh, 2001, 2002, first, uh, sorry, the second Gulf War had just occurred. Uh, global equity markets had fallen severely. And, and one of our younger advisors was literally trawling through the hit parade of who was doing well at that time. They stumbled across a name which was dimensional, and, uh, and one particular fund of theirs which routinely bought unloved stocks. And it was at the top of the hit parade, and she found it hard to understand uh, how that would work. And she said, have a look at this. So I had a bit of a look, and yes, it was a pretty outstanding performance at that particular point in time. And, and I just started reading the dimensional website. And, and with a background in mathematics, as I do have, um, the numbers really stacked up. And the evidence was there. And it actually made sense. Uh, we were relating things that really deserved to go together and uh, the results spoke for themselves and uh, continued to research, continued to research and uh, came to the conclusion that evidence-based investing was a whole lot better than trying to make predictions. So to put that in a sense, what, what does that mean in comparison to, I mean, we hear a lot about index index fund investing now that's... That, that's a big thing now. Um, before that, you have you know, well, you have active managers as well, which you do speak about mm-hmm. in your book. And then you've taken it pretty much to the next level, where you have this evidence base, where there's a few other different factors you add in. What's what's the difference across those? I guess different philosophies. I guess is it? Yeah. Look, I think index investing is a great place for every investor to start. If they don't know what to do, that's the way to start. Yep. And if you think about just index investing as as the starting point. 20 years ago, there was no such thing as Google. 20 years ago, there was no such thing as Facebook. 20 years ago, there was no such thing as Amazon. They're all in the index now or in some form of index. So so the thing that they do is they give investors exposure to all the industries that prevail at any given point in time. You don't end up with a portfolio that's rooted in history uh, that you haven't manipulated to get to the modern economy that we're in now. But the next step on from that is when you look through an index you can actually see factors that deliver superior results over long periods of time because of specific risk characteristics that they take. I used the word value investing uh, just a little while ago um, and, and I used the word unloved stocks. So whether a stock is, is unloved because it's got a high book price to its market price, whether it's got a high dividend to its market price, uh, it doesn't really matter which of those factors you follow so long as you do it in a disciplined way. But if you do it in a disciplined way, you eventually end up with a better result because you've taken a specific, known, well-understood risk and you've kept doing it over a long period of time. And 
as a result, the values eventually improve. So, Pete, that that sounds like a bit of the start of a, a building of a philosophy, right? So, you know, a passion, a, an understanding, a belief system that's rooted in evidence. Mm-hmm. So, and, and your book's called Your Investment Philosophy. Yep. Five key principles success, to successfully managing and protecting wealth. Yep. Geez, there's a tongue twister. Um, so why write that book and, and why have a philosophy, right? Well, I think the most important reason for having a philosophy is, is to use a process that works reliably over long periods of time to get better than average results. Quite specifically, since adopting this approach 20-odd years ago, uh, the message that we've said to clients consistently is, if you give us your money to invest for a long period of time, we'll eventually beat the average, not by a huge amount, but we'll give you a better than average result. And the majority of people that actually play in investment markets, even the seasoned professionals, uh, the statistics show that only about one in four actually outperform over long periods of time. We wanted to do better than average consistently for clients and, and in doing so, we knew that they would get a really good result. So you have to have a philosophy, you have to have a set of beliefs that you apply consistently and if you do, it's possible to get a better than average result. Well, well can we talk through the, I guess, the starting five of sure. that you've got and um, just give us a bit of uh, uh, an understanding of, of what they particularly mean and what you look at with your, your ground rules and your set of rules. So <laughs> the markets work, so you have a chapter in there that's, that talks about markets working what does that mean to the to the everyday person well i guess the first thing is to make sure people understand what the markets actually are whether it's the bond market or the stock market it's really just a mechanism where someone that wants to sell an asset can actually find someone who wants to buy it and uh, it's it's really like no like every other market so you know if you're down at the fruit and veggie market you know and and you've got money and you want to buy a watermelon the guy that runs the market, he's got watermelons to sell. So that's the market for watermelons. It's the same with the stock market, whether it's you know wanting to buy BHP shares. If you want to, sure, someone else will be prepared to sell them at a price they're happy to sell at. If you're in the bond market and, and you want to sell a government bond, someone else will be in the market willing to buy it. So we start with the fact that the market's the mechanism to allow people to buy and sell assets. Now, in terms of markets working... Um, the father of that concept is a guy named Eugene Farmer. Uh, Jason mentioned him earlier. He's, he's a Nobel Prize winner, and, and his view was that markets are incredibly efficient. He says, now, they may not be perfectly efficient, but his view is that investors should treat the market as though it is completely efficient. That is, all known information about a particular asset is available on any given day, and investors should except that the prices paid for those assets reflect all of that known information. So the markets are efficient with the transfer of information. And today, in our electronic age, you know, with the way technology works, it's literally nanoseconds. Nobody gets a free hit because they've got information that other people don't have. The information's all out there. A couple of great recent examples. Firstly, just of late, sadly, we've had the war in Ukraine. And there was suddenly a disruption of gas and oil supplies. So the price of gas and oil went up, the value of oil producing and gas producing companies went up. A bit over a year ago, the Chinese stopped buying Australian uh, iron ore. And what happened? The price of our miners here in Australia went down. The markets are incredibly efficient. They work to allow sellers and buyers to match. 
and they do it in a colossal way, literally every day. Yeah, and that's sorry, Paul. That, right. that it's the other thing that uh, Gene Farmer talks about in that is that the price at the moment is the right price, right? Which is the sum of what you've just said. So it's like. You know, everyone be aware at the moment. Pete talked about the fruit and veggie market, but if we went there three months ago and we were buying lettuce, you know, the price was I don't know two dollars a lettuce, right? And then with everything else that's been going on in the world and whatever, suddenly lettuce is eleven bucks. That doesn't mean that the lettuce farmers ripping anybody off. It just means that markets have equated the price from supply and demand, and that's the price that can be got. Doesn't mean tomorrow it's going to be eleven bucks. It could be five bucks again. Yep. It's just prices and markets move information around because nobody, had, unlike the Wall Street days and the Wolf of Wall Street, no one had inside information mm. that they could act on quick enough. And thankfully, we passed laws that said people go to jail for that sort of stuff. But now there's so much information moving around so quickly. It's all it's all but impossible mm. to know something ahead of somebody you, else in a way that enables you to profit. You, you talk about in the in the book the number of trades that happen. Worldwide on a, on a daily basis, I think it's something like 1.8 billion trades. That's people buying and selling all over the world. That actually sets the price of a specific equity or equities at that point in time. Absolutely, and and the fact that those 1.8 billion sales are actually available to take place and do take place shows that people are actually willing to assess the information that's available and act on it, whether they be a buyer or a seller. They've got the information that they believe is necessary to make an informed decision, and they trade. Markets do work. They work incredibly efficiently. Yeah. So for you to, for you to get, think you get a, can get a better result or a better buyer or a better sell than what that price is today, you, you're obviously making the suggestion that you know something yeah. you're either, either ahead of the group. You're either making the decision that you can interpret the information yep. better than anyone else, fair degree of arrogance cool. in that, yep. or or that, that maybe you're actually assessing the information just incorrectly anyway. Uh, yeah, I think that people need to accept that the information flows so quickly today, you're not going to get a free kick under any circumstances. You're only going to have the same information available to anybody else and, and, and to then make choices uh, that say the market price, price is wrong, um, you're making a pretty big prediction and there's a fair degree of arrogance okay. in it. You, so, made, you made mention at a conference a little while back that I went to that um, when you talk about that markets and you talk about index managers, um, you mentioned that active managers, this, mm -hmm. I think the number was 20% of yeah. active managers outperform the actual index, the, yeah. the, the, the price that's there for everyone to take. Yeah, when you, when you look at everybody that, that participates in investment markets, um, we know that it's a mathematical certainty that only half of them can get an above average result because the other half have to get a below average result. Yep. It's a mathematical certainty. Um, when it comes to investment managers that actually try to make predictions and try to outperform the average and then charge management fees, we know that it's a statistical certainty that less than half can beat the average on an after-fees basis and more than half actually end up underperforming the average. The long-term data, uh, whether it's produced by Stannon and Paws or others, is that about one in four can beat the average reliably uh, by making predictions and three out of four after costs will actually fail to beat the average. Okay, so if we if we taking a George Orwell quote, so if we accept that market's worth, that's like saying all pigs is equal, right? We're all playing the same game and if we just take what they're, we move on. So the next part in your book is the concept of risk and reward or risk and return being related. What, what can you convey to you know, the average Joe about that? Well, the absolute first lesson that everybody needs to understand about risk and reward is that 
there still is no such thing as a high return, low risk investment. Corny, cliched, old world, still the reality today. It uh, doesn't matter how sophisticated the world's become, that's a truism. Uh, but there are certainly known factors in financial markets where you can take a well-understood, well-researched, consistent risk and eventually get rewarded in the long term for it. Now, that doesn't mean you win taking that risk every single day. You certainly don't. But you certainly do win in the long run. Uh, I touched on earlier the, uh, the concept of value investing in the stock market. Now, this can be measured in various ways, whether it be book to market, whether it be price to dividend, whether it be price to yield, uh, doesn't matter so long as you consistently apply it. But if you use those known risks over long periods of time, you'll eventually end up with a better result. And, and in building our portfolios, and I know you guys do the same thing, we apply known, well-researched, well-understood risks in a very strategic way, consistently across all our portfolios, with the expectation to deliver a return that's just above average reliably over very long periods of time. And we know that if we do that, we've beaten 75% of the players in the race anyway. Mm. And, and, and the most important thing is that the clients get a good result. So when you're talking in the, in the equity markets, you, the risk you talk about, so there's investment risk for simply investing in the market. Yep. Um, but there's certainly for most... For a lot of punters or a lot of investors getting into the game, unfortunately, just because of knowledge or what have you, they actually take on risks that they don't need to that can be detrimental to the to the outcome of a portfolio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes that comes from chasing winners, right? It's yeah. the FOMO thing. You know, we talk about yep. um, over periods of time, you know, like the, the cryptocurrency booms of the last couple of years have been up and down like a yo-yo. And mm -hmm. a lot of people, unfortunately, equate yesterday's performance to tomorrow's reward and don't look at the underlying risk associated with just following the herd. Absolutely. Cryptocurrency, and I don't claim to be an expert in cryptocurrency, but cryptocurrency has been through the wildest of rides over the last few years. And, and people that thought they were missing out, uh, for instance, when Bitcoin was $60,000 a coin, are now licking their wounds when, when crypto, well, when Bitcoin is more like $20,000 per coin. And, and to be truthful, I haven't looked at this price in the last few days. Uh, but, but I can relate another story, and it's, it's far more simplistic, but I can remember when a whole bunch of farmers around uh, our great country thought that ostriches were going to be the next <laughs> yeah. big thing in the rural sector. Yep. You know, that, that ostrich eggs and ostrich feathers were going to make them a fortune. I, I recall distinctly a, a local farmer in our region bought a pair of ostriches, and this is about 1982, for $60,000. Wow. And the only thing he got out of those ostriches was a couple of roast dinners a few months later. <laughs> a freezer full of... <laughs> it wasn't a great result. <laughs> Bloody Bronto jump drumsticks, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, it's just, unfortunately, some people will chase what, what they hope yeah. can be the investment that'll hit it out of the park, that'll actually, you know, make them a fortune, you know, or have the fear of missing out, whether it be with crypto or something else. Um, there's the odd success story there, but unfortunately the vast majority of those endeavours end up you mentioned in it, tears. You mentioned it at the end of the risk return is that when you when you have a long-term outlook and a, and a philosophy, and the philosophy is really there to invest because you have other goals when it comes to the planning side of things, the ultimate risk you actually do mention is the risk of not having a money, enough money when you need it down the track to produce 
produce an income you have. hundred uh, percent. Gene Farmer's great, great long-term collaborator, Ken French, says that the actual definition of investment risk is not having the money that you need to do what you want when you want to do it. Now, that, that can mean a whole raft of things, but a portfolio is fundamentally a failure if, irrespective of the return that it's achieved, if it doesn't actually give the investor what they need at the time they want to do it. Yeah. Okay. The, uh, 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 can we just go back a bit with the yeah. ostriches because I thought that was a, yeah, no, a funny I was, story. I was going somewhere with that. But you now, when we were off air before, um, <laughs> Pete, tell the story. You, you mentioned the beefalo. <laughs> yeah, look, I we, this. We, oh. we had another client that um, came in to, to see me at a review and he'd spent uh, quite a number of thousands of dollars that, frankly, he couldn't afford to lose. Um, but he was certain, uh, because, of course, he'd been sold the idea, that uh, the cross between a male bull and a female buffalo in the Northern Terri- <laughs> Territory was going to be the next big thing in the meat industry in Australia. Well, sadly today, he doesn't own too many beefalo <laughs> and his, his, his portfolio had done quite a bit better than the cows. Well, they weren't cows, were they? No, no, uh, we're not quite sure they were. Yeah, his, his four-legged investment didn't do so well. I thought so. for a second you were going to be, it was going to be a bull cross with an ostrich, but anyway, that's, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. So I think based on that, and that's maybe a good analogy to talk into the next one of your starting five, which is diversification. So if we think, you know, the in simple terms, think back to the ostrich farmer. If he'd have concentrated on ostriches and chooks and maybe beef and, and, and maybe the odd sheep or two, then irrespective of what was going in markets, he had a better chance of at least one of them performing. So he wasn't putting all these, in the old terms, wasn't putting all these eggs in one basket. Absolutely. Um, there's, there's no question that diversification is most investors' best friend um, because as soon as we whittle down our, the size of our portfolio in terms of the number of assets that we hold – the more we ramp up the risk. So we might do a lot, lot better. Chances of that are slim, but we can sure as heck do a whole lot worse because we've had too big a weighting in any one particular investment asset. In fact, only as recently as yesterday, my son-in-law was talking to me about his view about portfolio construction as recently as a year ago. Now, he's been married to my daughter since 2014. Um, Good and call on his no- behalf. Yeah, <laughs> and known me for a lot longer than that anyway. He used to equate investment risk to one particular asset eliminating his his total net worth. Mm. And, and then finally, after doing a bit of um, financial market study, has realised that's not risk at all. Um, so it's it's absolutely important to diversify. And, and the best indicator I think I can give today, if, if we use index investing as a, as a really, really good way of diversifying, 20 years ago, there was no Apple, there was no Google, there was no Amazon. They're all in the index now. They're all available for investors uh, and they're not just some part of history that someone's had for a long time. Pete, there's there's there's... Diversifying and there's diversifying. I think we, I'm sure you've had clients like this. I've had a client a few months ago that came in and with their superannuation fund, I think they had about 16 different investment or different 16 different funds. Names under them. in their portfolio. Names, sorry, in their portfolio. Mm. And when um, Wade, who our, our planner at the back, broke it down, a bulk of those funds actually invested in the same thing. So whilst it looked highly diversified, mm. um, it was very concentrated in reality when you when you dug deep and looked bo- looked under the bonnet. 
Absolutely. And in fact, uh, there's a known concept uh, within investment management, and that is index tracking. A lot of the so-called active managers, the ones that we pay high fees to, to, to run concentrated portfolios, ironically, those concentrated portfolios are really similar because they tend to follow the biggest of the stocks in the index anyway, and they actually only make small plays at the fringes. So why would we pay them to make small plays at the fringes that, that largely don't do much towards achieving a better than average result? We may as well pay very low fees and just buy the index as a start if you're going to pursue that view that you can pick the winners. Because frankly, it, as I said earlier, it's only worked about one in four times. Use known factors... That, that have a high probability of superior returns, you can get a whole different outcome. Yeah, and I think about it from the way that we construct portfolios and the journey we've been on since the first trip to Chicago all those years ago, um, about diversification being most important, not on the upside, but on the downside, right? It, it, it's the thing that gives in and, pr- and protects because Never, nothing moves in the same direction at one time. And I know that, you know, I, I think it's Kuhneman that spoke about it, but it's certainly a psychological um, phenomenon that people are more fearful of loss than missed opportunities on gains. And I yep. think that's the thing that people tend to forget and that's why diversification is so Absolutely. important. Absolutely. Uh, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for economics, which I think is pretty good because he's a psychologist. Uh, but, but quite simply, it, it's really well documented. People fear losses more than twice as yeah. much as they fear missing out on gains. So diversification is, is, is the investor's best friend in that regard. And, and it's really important to remember that you know, a portfolio with only 30 stocks in it within an Australian market context is 30 out of 2,000. Yeah. You've left 1,970 yeah. on the shelf. Um, a portfolio with 300 stocks has a way better chance of tracking the whole market than a portfolio with only 30 stocks. And, and we've seen many an example and many a manager's tried to convince the investment committee uh, at the FYG group you know, to embrace their approach. And they'll come along and it'll be an international share portfolio uh, and they'll say, yeah, it's, it's broadly diversified. There's 70 stocks in it. <laughs> uh, and our, our international portfolio's got 8,000 stocks in it. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. diversification story uh, that some tell is anything but accurate. Yeah, so that the, the key point there, I think, is that diversification essentially is your only free lunch. Yep. Um, it's it's, it's there. Everyone it, gets it. Everyone, everyone can do it. it. Like yep. there's, there's, we spoke earlier about risk and reward and there's risk in investing in the in the equity markets, mm. but a way to reduce that is simply by spreading your, your fingers far and wide. So let's let's move on to asset allocation. This, yeah. one, this is one I'm really looking forward to, to talk about because I want to talk about a little bit of nitty-gritty. Um, and there's a, there's a part in the book you talk about in regards to um, some large super funds in Australia um, that talk and – we, and we do a, we've done a podcast that drops – Yeah, dropped last week. Dropped last week. Oh, this morning. This morning. There you go. Um, where we spoke about how it can be confusing comparing a balance fund to a balance fund from one super provider to another super provider because the underlying asset allocation, whilst you think a balance fund is 50-50 or, or 60-40, as in 50% growth, 50% defensive, you have some uh, superannuation funds that in fact may have 80% of the money invested in growth versus defensive um, which I think is, I don't even understand how that can happen in reality, but that, that's what happens. Yeah, Paul, it's an interesting point in that there is no legislative obligation on any of the big super funds to actually run true-to-label portfolios. 
So you could have one fund manager defining uh, a balanced fund as 40% defensive assets of cash and fixed income securities, 60% equities. But you could have another one that might be 15% cash and fixed income securities and 85% equities. Now, they might have the same label, but they're certainly not the same fund. They're certainly not the same risk, and they sure as heck won't deliver the same results. And, and so what you can tell over time, if you study all the big super funds for long enough, you can tell the ones that took more risk have the higher rates of return. The ones that took less risk get the lower rate of return. goes right back to the risk-reward story, you know, 15 minutes or so ago. So it's important to make sure that the investors understand what level of risk they're actually taking um, before they equate one to the other. Another study I'd like to mention is there was a, a, a decade-long study that happened in the United States, started in 1990 by a, a group of academics, and they actually assessed the results of 90 different major super funds or, or pension funds, as they're known in the United States, and they could only identify 6% of the total return to the way the actual investment managers changed the mix in the portfolio or what they actually bought with the portfolio. 94% of the result was absolutely attributable to how much they put in cash and fixed income and how much they put in equities. So the, the asset allocation decision about how much risk you take and how much conservative assets you have in a portfolio was the key determinant of the actual result. Everything else, just noise. So Pete, asset allocation, when we when, when you talk it in the book and when we talk it to clients, we're talking about how much in the major asset, asset class, which if we take international and domestic out, there's essentially cash, money in the bank, bonds, some form of return, an income return for giving up some capital. Equities or shares, which are investing in companies or essentially real estate or other real assets. You know, people might want to claim gold dug out of the ground, but it's essentially physical things. That's how we put those bits together is asset allocation. So how does that fit with the topic we talked about for with diversification as well? Surely there's a bit of a crossover. There's, you know, you're getting a double-edged sword there? Yeah, uh, I think that the diversification uh, can be looked at in, in two different ways. Firstly, from the defensive part of a portfolio, that is the cash and fixed income, and then you can look at diversification on the equity side. I'll quickly allude to cash and fixed income. When you're actually investing in cash and fixed income, what you're doing is lending your money to some other party. And the two key drivers of the returns there are, A, how long you lend the money for, why is that important? The longer you lend it for, the more chance they've got of going broke and not giving you your money back. So there's a risk there that they won't be able to repay that money. So traditionally, you get a reward for the longer that you lend. Then you can lend your money to an organisation that's really safe. So if you put your money in the Commonwealth Bank, you're going to get that money back. But if you deposit your money with the Acme Building Society of Brazil, you may not get your money back because their credit rating may not be as good as the Commonwealth Bank. And there are people, most people have heard of credit rating agencies and you can go from AAA all the way out to triple B minus and you can get into the C's and then you can get into things called junk bonds. And, and if you lend your money to someone at that end, you're going to get a high reward mm. until maybe they don't pay it back and then you get a different type it's of rewards called loss. I think that's really important and I think most people get that, but I think the, the big one, all of that is 
let's say logical, right? And and I'm and I'm I'm reading a book at the moment, and we'll do a book review on it at some point called The Psychology of Money, written by Morgan Housel. And I know you, you mm-hmm. were part of a, a, a webinar we did with Morgan when he talked about that. And he talks about in his book, or that the premise of his book is that investing and money is logical, except humans are emotional, <laughs> and the two things don't mix, right? And he talks about the fact and that you know the modern study of money essentially and we, you you talked about Gene Farmer before you know and and before him was a Harry Markowitz who got his Nobel prize in the, in in the 80s i mean they only studied studying this stuff in the 60s right gene farmer said when he was a i think a music major right and decided he'd study finance and they were, you know had to he went through that and he started teaching finance he had to make the curriculum up in the in the late 60s and 70s because no one had ever done this stuff right so your fifth key starting five is discipline right which i think is the marriage of the human emotional element to everything that we know makes sense and and how is that important for investors and where do we get it wrong i i think it's absolutely vital the discipline to have a an investment philosophy that's based on evidence implement it in a diversified way and then have the courage to stick with it uh, through thick and thin, and and there will always be thick and thin, uh, and I'll give two particular uh, analogies. Have a very long term client, in fact, been client since 1993. Uh, they've become really close friends, um, husband and wife, Graham and Sally. Uh, got through the the first part of the GFC, uh, fairly nervous, but eventually Graham's nerves got the better of him in the October of 2008. Um, I stress to Graham that having been through the significant part of the downturn, it wasn't quite the bottom, but they were within about 10% of the bottom, um, I pleaded with him not to bail. But in the end, it got the better of him, moved everything to cash. And I I stressed to to both of them, the only way this could work in their favour is if they were prepared to invest again when things were even worse. Correct. And I asked him straight out, are you going to be able to do this, Graham? And his response was, I don't know. Anyway, um, time moves on. It's it's early March of uh, 2009. In fact, about March the fifth, and I rang Graham and I said, "Look, the, the the narrative's changing. You know, there's an expectation in all of the media that the bottom's passed. Can you please let me invest some more of your funds uh, back into the equity markets?" No. Anyway, about two weeks later, it's about the 20th of March, and I rang again, and and got the same reply. No. Um, Eventually, at the fourth attempt, I managed to convince Graham and Sally to reinvest the way they'd previously been. The markets were already up 25% by this point. And anyway, they've been long-term clients, become quite good friends. February 2010, uh, they come to Sisters Beach, our beach house, and they're going to stay for a few days. We've got a formal review meeting in, in my office there. And get through the meeting and they're as happy as larks. Portfolio values up about 16 or 17% uh, from where it had been reinvested uh, and, and, and they can sort of see the light. And I, I let them just absorb that and I said, now I've got to do something now that I'm not looking forward to, but I need you to look at this. And I actually showed them the data uh, as to where they would have been if they'd done nothing. Sat on their hands, yeah. right? And my friends had cost themselves $300,000. Yeah, yeah. And that really hurt that, that they were worse yeah. off than they ought to have been. Now, through all the the downs and ups that have happened since then, they've never reacted like that again. The converse story is is one that you guys heard me tell at a 
a conference recently and we've got this one particular client who retired in 2002, so it's 20 years in a few weeks' time that they've been investing. They've had a balanced portfolio or what we call a 70-30 portfolio just rebalanced annually every year for the 20 years. And over the last 20 years, they've taken in excess of $2 million out of that portfolio to live on, mm. in excess of $100,000 a year, and today they've got more money than they started with. And whilst that might sound spectacular, the actual return is almost exactly 8% per annum. They had the discipline to stick with the strategy through thick and thin all the way along that, and they've had a really good result. Now, when I did all that analysis for them the first time in 2019, they had a 17-year track record, I said, I haven't done this to pat myself on the back. I've done this to pat you on the back. Yep. Because through you being disciplined, you've got the really, really good result. Yeah, we... I... yeah sorry. Sorry, Peter, cut you off. No, I was there. just going to say, and, yeah. and, and even though this last year has been a very difficult year, you know, a portfolio result of about minus 11, mm. it wasn't actually difficult to just remind them that last year's result was nearly a 30% yeah, return yeah. and neither one of those two things we, last. We did, we did uh, we've had clients very similar situations to what you're talking about and we did sure. a, we actually did a webinar for our clients um, during COVID yep. when it hit and, and the whole basis around that was what Jason said earlier, just sit on your hands and, and not worry about it and we did it, you know, after it already had the, the massive fall, so we're getting close to the bottom of the market, although we didn't know what where the bottom was going to be. Um, and we didn't know how quick it was going to bounce back either. But the whole, the, the media, I, I just remember the media through that period and there's, and I know you and Jason have got uh, heaps of stories about how the, the media loves to, to jump on negativity and it's very hard to be disciplined yeah. when the media... In which in turn the general public are having this negative thought on investment uh, yeah. markets. We, there was a period in that COVID where it was in the Cairns Post where I think it was the single biggest daily percentage drop for, I can't remember, 50 years or even even longer. It was splashed across the, the front page. Worst day ever. The very next day, the markets bounced back and I think it was the second best day of all time. But it was six pages in in, in, in yeah. small print out the back. You've... There's a couple of. Um, I've got a similar story to that because, yeah. you know, Pete was talking about Graham and Sally earlier. And, you know, what he didn't say is that he and I and a colleague of ours, Paul Horn, caused the GFC because we got on a plane in Tokyo mm. um, all those years ago. Mm. And it was an 11 hour flight across to New York City. We were going to New York City on our way mm. to Boston, I think, for another one of those work trips. We learnt plenty, which we did. And we got on the plane and everything was normal, right? We get off the plane and as only America can do, right? We're standing in immigration, coming into America. There's about six or seven jumbos all come in at the same time. And up on the screen above immigration, these television screens with the news, right? And, you know, we've been in a plane for 11 hours. We haven't got a clue what's going on. And land in New York to the markets having crashed 700 and whatever that. Yeah. Like it was just off the Richter scale. It was day one of the GFC. And the front page of the New York Post... Uh, New York Times, all of those was, you know, markets were terrible. It's 1987 again, rah, 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 rah. And we go, holy snaps, what's going on? Anyway, next day, same thing, right? Now, that would lead into a GFC that went for quite a period. But the next day, I think the market was up 570 mm. points or something, yeah. beat the Dow. Mm. Back, last page of the finance section, about 106 <laughs> pages good. in. And I've just cut They're the good. two clippings because, you know, yep. story, you know, Hysteria sells newspapers, right? Yeah. And and for ours, and I think that that sort of leads. I had one last question, or one thing you do in the book. I mean, there's some great material in the book, and and a lot of what we've spoken about. Let's face it, is common sense. It takes discipline. 
patience and logic, but emotions override. And so you're talking there in the book, you've got a question. Why do, if you read that book, surely you've got everything at disposal. Why do you need a financial advisor? I think the single most important reason is to ensure that the end investor stays disciplined because it's way harder uh, to do than to think you can do it. Um, People who believe they can do it themselves almost invariably make the mistakes at some point that having a good advisor will stop them from actually doing. Uh, We've got a really good friend, uh, you and I, in in Sydney, who uses the phrase stupidity prevention. Um, I I don't like to use that phrase, but certainly self-harm prevention. You know, if if Graham and Sally had just listened, they'd be $300,000 better off. Got another uh, client in Sydney, a doctor, a really clever guy, um, but unfortunately was linking his medical knowledge to his knowledge of COVID and and assuming that what his beliefs were about COVID would naturally apply to financial markets. Now, with the greatest of respect, and he's a seriously good guy and a smart guy, uh, financial markets and virology are not exactly well-related. But he got into his head that he had to cash out of the market and he now regrets that immensely um, because he's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars poorer in fact, far more than Graham and Sally missed yeah, out like, back on the back I, in the GFC. And I have something similar. Like, but I had a number of conversations with clients. Like, we're in a tourist town, right? Mm. And the GFC just about decimated anybody yeah. who was in tourism or hospitality or retail. And and whilst I, we managed to keep all of the clients in the seat, we had some really difficult conversations. The same thing. How could because they were relating what their business was looking like and where it might recover, mm. and equating that to what financial markets were going to do, and they're just not the same thing. Right? We use a uh, we use a, a an art, well, it's not an article; it's a sketch. You guys, at Carl Richards, who's a mm-hmm. what is he a financial mm-hmm. sketcher, yeah, yeah. financial drawer, I guess. <laughs> Um, but he has this one called the, the behaviour gap, which is basically two graphs. We might throw it on the Facebook site so you know what we're talking about. But basically the, the, the graph on the left, the tall building, is basically the return that investors are get, that are, they're willing to take. As you said, market work, the markets are giving you a return and have done over the last, in Australia, 121 mm-hmm. years. But then there's the return that the investors get, which is quite a deal smaller. And he calls that gap between what the investors get and what the actual return that is out there is the behaviour gap. And it's all to do basically the, the discipline, yep. isn't it? Discipline Absolutely. is key. I agree. 100%. In fact, there's a, a study routinely published in the United States that we share amongst our advisory group by a co- produced by a company called Dalbar. And, and the average US investor, and Aussies might think, oh, we're smarter than them, mm. and good luck if they believe that. Yep. Um, but the average US investor actually gets about 5% per annum less than the market and that's purely their own bad behavior selling at the bottom because their nerves have beaten them Mm -hmm. and and then waiting till investments have gone up in value dramatically before they're prepared to buy them and and the pain that they suffer is the minus five percent per annum yeah all right well pete that's time's flying We've, we've we've it's been a great chat mate it's really good to um to have you in town um, and also to be able to have a chat and share your wisdom with uh, with our listeners. Um, I think there's some great lessons um, in that chat. There's also some great lessons in the book, so we look forward to sending stuff out. Um, Paul's going to you know wrap up and give you the, the, the question, but I thought we might have two questions. I, I, I thought of one on the fly, right? Yep. It's, it's, it's a little personal, right? But it, Pete and I, we both like our red, 
right? In fact, I could say, for, you know, Dad didn't mind a red, but I think that most of my um, palate has been developed, you know, with drinking, with drinking wine with this gentleman over a long period of time and, and it certainly expanded. And I remember taking a phone call from Pete uh, a few years ago. Let's just say um, New South Wales had just won the State of Origin in Game 3 um, by a record score of, you know, close enough to 40 points. I blacked it out. I can't remember. And he said, you know, I think it would be a good idea if we, you know, we had a punt on the origin because Pete's a born and he's in Lismore, he's a cockroach, he's a Balmain supporter, Richmond Tigers supporter. So we should have – I said, that's fine. He said, so we'll have a bottle of wine on the every game in that next series. So, but the, it was one condition. We had to drink it with each other, right? That was, that was the deal. Now, that has carried on ab to this date. So that the bonus question – to, um, and we might send out a special prize if you can get this right, if you can answer Pete's. Is we might get Jason to offload a, a bottle of wine out I'll, of his yeah, cellar. It's I'll, hard, I'll, I'll but find one. I'll find one to send it out. You've got you to gotta say, as of today, what is the current count? <laughs> I, I, can, I can let the listeners know that I'm not in front. <laughs> right. Uh, so we, we will wrap up. Um, Pete, I apologise for that. I did tell you we wouldn't mention the state of origin, or I wouldn't mention it, so, and I haven't. No, that's right. Joking, no. So I'm, I'm true to my word. Um, but uh, for you people that want to um, win a book, Peter's book, and I can also make mention to Daniel Crow as well, who uh, co-authored with you, Peter. It's, as I said, it's a great read. Um, but to get a copy of this book, the question is, what are Peter and Daniel's starting five? Um, put that through our Facebook page, get it through, and we'll, we'll send you a book out. But again, Peter, I want to thank you very much for coming and flying in all the way from Bernie and Tasmania to be with us live here today. I really appreciate it, mate. Cheers, Paul. It's been great, great to be here. Thanks very much, Pete. We'll see you next time. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and the information contained is of a general nature and may not be relevant to your particular circumstances. The circumstances of each investor are different and you should seek advice from a professional financial advisor who can consider if particular strategies and products are right for you. In all instances where information is based on historical performance, it is important to understand this is not a reliable indicator of future performance. You should not rely on any material on this podcast to make investment decisions and should seek professional advice. Fowler's Group ABN 5710524284 is an authorised representative number 230575 and credit representative number 403265 of FYG Planners Propriety Limited ABN 5509497254040 Australian Financial Services and Credit Licence Number 224543